This is Severin. I'm your host, Jess, today for our show, For Young Farmers, by Young Farmers. Today, I'm happy to make a couple of announcements before the show begins. We have a wonderful interview with Jacob Cowgill from Montana, and but I first want to put your pencil in your notebook to say on May 2nd, which is this Saturday, we have a lot of Greenhorns events in Brooklyn, New York, which is where this radio is being broadcast. So if you live in Brooklyn, uh, you should know that we're going to be at the Grand Army Market Place, Farmer's Market, in the morning, and then we'll be speaking at the Brooklyn Food Conference at 3.45 p.m. with a whole bunch of other wonderful young farmers doing a little panel. And then at 7.30 p.m., we're showing our 14-minute, um, like, preview, sneak preview um, at the Brooklyn Museum, which is in also just around the corner. So you could do all of this on a bicycle if you wanted and hang out all day long with me if you wanted to. Um, and that's all about that. More about other things later. Now I'm so excited to um, thank our host, sorry, thank our sponsor once again, Hearst Ranch, for keeping us on the air, and welcome Jacob to the show. Jacob, are you there? Hi, Severin. Hi, Jacob. Um, I, I would love to introduce you, but I think that actually what would be great is for you to introduce yourself. Would you mind telling um, our radio listeners where you are in the world and what, what you're doing? Sure. Um, I'm, my wife and I are farming in <clears throat> north-central Montana uh, on the east, east side of the Rocky Mountain front. We're in Conrad, um, which is about 60 miles north of one of Montana's bigger cities, Great Falls. And um, we, my wife and I recently just moved back home. We're actually from this area originally, and so um, we're starting our own farm this year. Um, and we're raising... Heritage turkeys, we're going to do about a half acre of uh, organic vegetables that will sell through CSA and through the Great Falls Farmer's Market. And then we're also um, growing eight acres of, of white lentils, five acres of emmer, which is an ancient variety of wheat, and then we'll do a um, handful of miscellaneous uh, smaller things like um, Indian corn and milk. And then, uh, Jacob, will you tell me and also the listeners about your experience leading you to this point and and your kind of apprenticeship process. I think that you're in a wonderful place now of starting your own farm. Oh, wait. But I wanted to hear how you got there. Uh, sure. I um, I actually didn't come to decide to farm um, until I was in graduate school at the University of Montana in Missoula. And um, it just sort of crept into my psyche, I think, over over the course of my studies. I, I had... I was focusing on writing and sustainable food and agriculture in the environmental studies program, and I was taking a lot of really interesting classes. One in particular um, was the politics of food, and it was a combination of that class and on um, on the ground um, experience on a small uh, vegetable farm in in the city um, that that works collaboratively with the university. It was those two things that I think really started to to um, lead me in this direction. And so once out of graduate school, I I was lucky enough to get a job with a farmer. What school um, were you going to? What was the university? University of Montana in Missoula. And is the, it seems like a lot of people who go to the University of Montana pop out and go into sustainable ag. Was that your experience? 
Um, like, did you did you have a good tribe there? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and the environmental studies program, the graduate program in particular, um, really creates. I mean, I think that the people that go to that program are already of a certain mindset, but it really does put out some incredible individuals, and a lot of them do end up working in some fashion in um, food advocacy or sustainable agriculture. Um, so yeah, the, my my um, class mates were um, were great, and I'm still in touch with them, and we're all doing our own various things, but all related to food and ag, so we've, we've got this network and it seems, already. And it seems like, um, I'm sorry, when I cut you off, it's just because I think that you're stopping because I can't hear you very well, but um, I was in Missoula and checking out some of the high school farms that are set up around there and um, some of the um, Hmong farmers and right. went to the farmer's market in Missoula and was just totally blown away. I mean, local in Montana is different from local in any other place. People are just driving all the time, but... Um, holy moly, what an amazing spread. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Missoula has one of the best farmer's markets in the States, I think. Um, so, yeah, you saw probably probably one of the best. Um, so tell me, why did you choose to raise turkeys other than that they, um, they're they so beautiful? Um, it, I, I raised them last year uh, for the first time and um, just to get experience. And I didn't raise too many. I only raised about 30. And um, they're heritage turkeys, so that they're the older breeds and varieties, which I really like. And I, I just wanted to, I wanted, I want to begin to integrate livestock into my operation. And so I thought that well, poultry would be a nice way of easing into it in case I ever want to try um, something bigger like uh, sheep or cows or you know goats or something like that. So I wanted to start smaller, small animals, and. Um, and it was successful last year, and so I, I developed a pretty good customer base, and so I'm doing it again this year. Is he still there? Uh, can you hear me, Severin? Well, I have a very strong signal, but I don't hear you very well at all. But um, <clears throat> what I've heard about turkeys is that they are like the favorite, favorite food of coyotes. And I'm just hoping you didn't have any casualties because my friend Casey lost like a hundred birds this year. Oh my gosh, no! I think I was pretty fortunate. I had there were plenty of coyotes and other predators in the area, but I I must have lucked out because I didn't lose a single one to predators. Wow. Well, the lucky are the ones who survive, I guess. That's right. Um, okay. So another point is that. I have just spent the whole day with um, wire cutters and gloves, and I've scratched myself silly, and I've scratched my knees and my wrists and my face with um, what they call it, turkey wire, but I'm using it to build rabbit hutches. Can you talk about the infrastructure that it required for you to get your birds going and then a little bit of the, like, price point, how that breaks out? Like, what, is, what do you make per turkey, and what does it really take to make that amount of money? Well, um... <clears throat> With only one year under my belt, I know that I made a lot of mistakes, and I I, I broke even last year. And um, but essentially, you know, the brooder is like any other poultry brooder. It can be anywhere that it's warm and draft-free, and you've got heat. And so right now, my turkeys are in my basement. Um, and then once once they're out of the brooder in a couple months, my turkeys will be out on pasture. And so what I have for them is a mobile shelter, which last year was a carport, was just an aluminum frame carport with a canvas 
covering, which I might try something different this year because the wind just tore it apart and nearly blew it away. And the wind really blows over here, so that's a that's a concern. And then they, that shelter is surrounded by uh, electric poultry netting, which is powered by a solar fence controller. And so every few days I would move the whole setup to fresh pasture. And really that's it besides the waterers and the feeders. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, so I, I, I wish I could tell you exactly price points and things like that, but I don't really have enough data. Um, last year I didn't, I just broke even and I actually may have lost some money. But I figure as I get better at this. Yeah, it I definitely feels like, um, you know, no matter how many times I've read it and how many times my friends have told me, I'm continually astounded by just how much cash flow it, is, it requires to capitalize even even a small operation, and particularly with animals who like to escape or be eaten by other animals. Um, right. There's a lot. What kind of um, what kind of fencing did you buy? Like, what's the brand? Um, the, I don't know the brand, but the company is Premier One, and oh. and they've been really good. And they're yeah, they're really I've, good I've with been looking at all these different ones, and they all look pretty janky to me. But I kind of want to buy like like Norwegian wire or something. But I don't know. If they, I don't really know if there is the like Elliot Coleman version of um, movable electric fencing. Yeah. Premier. Okay, I'm sorry. That's that's a personal question, and maybe nobody else cares about that. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, your work with Kamut and maybe tell us what Kamut is? Sure. Um, the the farmer that I worked with the last two seasons, who um, was part of what I would consider part of my mentoring process leading up to this year, uh, his name is Bob Quinn, and he is he's a really progressive farmer in Montana that farms about a little over three thousand acres organically, and he grows. Um, Organic grains, but his sort of claim to fame is he's he has trade he has um, how do I say this he discovered he rediscovered an ancient variety of wheat called Corasan. That's the variety name. And what he did was he 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 trademarked a brand name Kamut. So Kamut is simply a brand name for Corasan wheat. And so the way it works is that anybody can grow Corasan, but if they want to sell it as Kamut, they have to sort of follow his rules, sign his contract. Um, and there are certain stipulations, like it has to be grown organically, it has to be part of a diversified operation, um, and a whole number of other things. But what he's done is he has he has worked his tail off to promote the brand name Kamut, and he sell, it, it's sold all over the world. The Italians love it, and it's turned into all sorts of things like pasta. It's a Durham type, so it's turned into pasta and snacks and crackers and cookies and syrups and of course, bread and flour, um, and he's, it's just been a really remarkable uh, story. But my involvement is simply that I helped him grow it, some of it last year. He has a whole bunch of farmers growing it, but helped him grow it and just sort of um, got to know the grain a little bit, and I'm going to be growing a little bit uh, myself this year. And can you mind describing, like, the difference of it's ancient, but what does that mean in practical terms? Well, it it essentially means that, I mean, there's heritage grains and there's ancient grains. Ancient grains are thousands of years old. Like the emmer that I'm growing is an ancient grain. Where do um, they come from? They they came from some from the Middle East, um, some from the Fertile Crescent. 
Um, and then the heritage grains are just older varieties, so they, they've been bred throughout the throughout the ages, but they're they're older, um, you know. And there's some sort of there's a hazy definition. It, some people consider it anything pre 1950 or 1940, but I think it's pretty much just old old wheat. And the appeal of the ancient and old varieties of wheat is that they're they're not overly bred. Um, in other words, the, the modern wheat is, is bred for very specific things like high yields, um, certain insect resistance or disease resistance or drought resistance. And in the process, the theory is, this is just a theory, that in the process of, of this modern breeding for these certain characteristics, something else has been lost. And um, some people suspect that a certain amount of nutrition has been lost in our modern wheats. And so some people that can't tolerate, they have gluten intolerance to some of the modern wheats, can eat kamut, which sort of lends itself to this notion that, that maybe something has been lost in this, in this overbreeding of our wheat varieties, that, um, because Khorasan isn't, it, it's, it's, it's not, hasn't been bred, it is its own thing. It's an ancient variety, and so some people can tolerate it. Um, it so that's the appeal like of the modern of times, or the ancient. What's well, that? I've been out in the forest. Um, cutting bean poles, and I've been watching. Um, I've been watching the walls that were built by early New England farmers, and how carefully they would analyze the field and put the wall right, you know, right along the key line and right along the right contour. And they just were so cleverly placing those stones and, and thoughtfully. And it seems also that these ancient farmers who were breeding these varieties had a very um, sophisticated sensibility about the seed that they were saving and the and the quality of the grain that they were that they were working working on. I almost feel like those um, that sensitivity and sophistication doesn't uh, doesn't exist in the in the same way now in the consciousness of the seed breeders and that we've sacrificed some of that wisdom with our you know constant strivings for, for uniformity and for the shorter for the shorter grain. I mean this is not my insight, this is this is what Jackson tells us, but tell me about how in your work with this guy, if you if well, I don't know if you did, but maybe you it seems like when you were working with the drought tolerant other kinds of vegetables that you might have had to like re enter the psyche of the um, of the ancient breeder. Um, does that is this is it, am I making something up or does that ring true? Well, it that, the another the reason actually why I was hired to work with him was to help out on the farm number one, but also to help with these various experiments. and And one of the experiments was growing dryland vegetables. And this is dryland country. In other words, it's not irrigated. And up there, it's average of oh, 13 inches of of precipitation a year, and maybe six or seven inches of that during the growing season in rain. And so um, we tried growing it's dry really land dry. vegetables. It's really dry. And once, you know, so those vegetables that we started in the greenhouse, we grew as you normally would grow. And then once they're out in the field or anything direct seeded in the field, like the winter squash or the potatoes, we wouldn't water them. You know, we'd just put them in the ground and then see what happened. And And so then I... I did this the past two years, and, and we've been growing tomatoes dry land, and so I've been so I've been only growing heirloom tomatoes so that I can save the seed. And thus far, I've just been just extremely happy that the tomato it 
actually survived. And so I've been saving, you know, as many seeds as I can. And, and what I hope to do is over time start to be more selective. And I suspect that I'll, I'll you know, I'll start to, to, to see things that I, or to observe things that I maybe never would have even thought about before. But, you know, for now it's just like I'm just so happy these guys are surviving in these conditions and producing fruit. I'm going to save all the seed that I can. So right now I'm not I'm not really training a critical eye on these guys um, until I feel like I have a pretty good pretty good seed base and I know which varieties are actually going to produce fruit number one and then I'll start looking for certain characteristics within each each individual plant. Yeah. To, um, Back to basics. What survives? <laughs> What's that? Um. Okay. Next question. Would you mean, would you mind telling me about lentils and their particular cultural needs? You know I. I actually have very limited experience in growing lentils. I could tell you all about lentils in about, you know, but this time next year. But um, this year, all all I'm doing is I'm all I've done so far is just put them in the ground. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. Um, and how I'm many how many pounds per acre? What's that? Can you hear me? What was that? How many pounds of lentils do you plant per acre? Oh, what did I do? Let's see, I had 300. Um, did I do? Mm-hmm. I must have done about 30, 30 to 40 pounds an acre. Wow, so not so, not so dense. No. Well, that's less than than my cover crops are I'm doing. Interesting. I'd have to double check though. Tell me about your land that you found. You don't you don't own it or you do own it? No. Um actually this is a pretty pretty remarkable um opportunity that we stumbled across. Um the the farmer that that we're we're leasing from, we're leasing about 20 acres of his 260 acre farm. Um, he's he's a guy that I've his name's David Oyen. He's a guy that I've known for for the past couple of years. Um, he's the president of Timeless Seeds and Timeless Natural Foods, which sells food grade lentils and purple barley and chickpeas. Um, but he he's been involved in organic agriculture for for a long, long time. So the farm's already organic. But through our our um, through our networks, we sort of connected. And I just, he discovered that I was looking for a place to farm, and, and I discovered that he was looking for someone to farm his place. And so we started talking last October, and it sort of all happened pretty rapidly uh, until we ended up deciding on leasing 20 acres and going through this first year, learning a whole lot, and then next year and the years after, sort of deciding what to do based on how this first year goes. Maybe we continue and to lease or to say, add more acreage. Um, I find these negotiations, like everybody who I'm talking to about the negotiation of their land, it's like really nervous-making. I mean, it's kind of like proposing to your wife or, you know, talking to the president of your university or something. It's like a very serious um, affair. What would, you, what would you counsel other people as they enter those kinds of serious conversations that have like many, many decades hanging on them? how they should approach that communication. You know, 
I don't right? I don't know what I would tell other people. I mean, I feel like I feel like that my talk my talks with with David have been extremely open and you know, he has a he has a very specific vision for what he wants to happen to his farm. And it's not just to sell it to the neighbors, it's not to parcel it out into 20 acre bits for, for people with horses. You know, so he knows exactly what he wants, and, and it happens to fit my vision. And so it, it's been a really pretty comfortable process. And I think that, I mean, I don't, I don't feel any resistance. Um, I feel like we're sort of on the same page, and I, I don't know what I would, would tell people except that maybe just, just be sure that you're, you're open. You know, you're, you're, you're telling the truth. You're expressing your concerns. Um, Besides that, I don't. I don't know. I mean, we haven't. We've talked a little bit about the actual transition process, but haven't come up with a formalized plan or a timeline or, you know, how much or how we're going to do it. Whether it be lease to lease with option to buy or some sort of other creative split estate arrangement or something. But when that time yeah, comes, maybe that's, maybe that's the, the complicated part. Like that that whole negotiation. What? How old is your farmer? Who your who you rented from? Um, I would say he's in his 50s. 50s? Yeah, that's the same as mine, who I'm renting from. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like it's a cool, I feel like the younger the, the person that you're leasing from, the better, because then they're not in a hurry necessarily, and I feel like the hurry part can be a little bit stressful. Oh, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, and anyway... I want to learn a lot more about that part of things because it seems like that's one of the, like particularly if one of our one of the ways that we're thinking about um, helping young farmers get access to land would be um, asking for there to be tax incentives for people who are um, already farming or are you know agricultural landowners and who are interested to lease out a small portion of their land for a, a young farmer. Right. That we would have to really figure out what those incentives might be and how to structure them so that they, so that those are really, you know, useful incentives and actually work. Because, you know, taking on another person on your farm, it's a, quite a big time commitment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and having some sort of incentive definitely would help because a lot of farmers around here, even if, even if they wanted to give it to the next generation, the reality is that their farm, their that land is their retirement. I mean, their their entire, their all their assets are in that farm. It's not like they have a have a retirement account or anything like that. It's all in that land, and so you know when they come time to retire, they that's sort of what they're banking on is that they can sell the land or part of the land to to retire. So but you're kind of rural, so it's not like they're selling that land into development. They're selling it to other farmers. Is that right? Around here, depending, for the most part, well, it depends on where you are, but, yeah, um, towns are shrinking and dying around here as as the farms get bigger and bigger and farm families leave. What does that mean? Does that mean that, like, churches are going out of business and schools are shutting? I mean, what does that translate into? Yeah, like, it means. Is that, there a, like when you guys have kids? Is there a school where you can go that's close? Or yeah, we're we're in we're in Conrad, which is about twenty seven hundred people, and um, Conrad seems to there's 
Dutton, which is where my, my wife is from, which is just about 20 miles, 30 miles south of here, uh, there's three towns, three towns just south of here, including Dutton, that are shrinking, and schools are closing, and sports teams are consolidating, and what what makes Conrad sort of different is that it seems to be not so much absorbing those other towns, but it is sort of stepping up, and businesses are staying open here, the implement dealers are still open, there's, there's grocery store, and there's, you know, little shops, and I think it's the reason why Conrad is surviving is because these other towns are not. In other words, these other towns now rely on Conrad to provide a lot of those services that they used to be able to provide for themselves. Um, so Conrad seems okay for now, but everywhere else around us is um, it's pretty sad to see. Well, and what's so crazy is, you know, the classic story of Main Street shutdown is all the little mom-and-pop shops go out and then they go out because the big Walmart came at the, at the corner of town, and now, you know, the, a lot of the big boxes are shutting down. And, you know, all these people are, like, left without a place to buy a hammer. Right. And, you know, it's all very well to talk about, you know, getting ourselves sustainable, but if there's nowhere to buy canning jars and, you know, a crowbar, then it seems, you know, like we're really really up a creek without, literally, without a hammer, or without a paddle, sorry. Right. But it's good that you still have that in your town. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, um, is there a local, um, is there a local radio station? Um, pretty local. I mean, there's, there's one about 20 miles north of here, and there's, there's a few stations 60 miles south, and then we, we have pretty good signals, so we can pick up various other stations around the state, too. But there isn't one that I'm aware of right here in town. So my my question, my next question is basically, what are the, um, last week we were ta- on the show we were talking to Lisa Hamilton, who just wrote a really great book called Deeply Rooted, about um, a whole bunch of unconventional farmers. Well, some of them are conventional, but they're pretty unconventional in the way they approach farming. And um, she was talking about all of these social institutions that, existed in rural communities and provided a really strong intellectual life in those towns and how much those have faded. I wonder if if, um, um, if your town has any of those and if you could describe what they are. Social institutions? Well, like Grange or um, like my friend in Fremont, his parents belong to like a nurserymen's association. Basically, groups of people organized around um, organized around um, a certain activity, and hopefully agricultural. Well, I don't know. There, there actually is a Conrad Garden Club, um, which is pretty neat. I mean, we went to one of the meetings, and um, besides that. Um, you know, I mean, they're not exactly agricultural, but there's the Moose Lodge and there's uh, the VFW, and I'm sure there's other organizations. What's that, um, the, v- the VFW? The VFW, the, the Veterans, um, I don't know what it stands for. Oh, Veterans. Yeah. Mm. But not very much, like, you don't have, like, a contra dance club or, like, any kind of, like, young dancing stuff? No, no. Are you too busy to start one? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> it's been a really busy spring. We got to get some more kids out to your town to help you start the start up the um, country dance club. We would love more kids out to our town. What would what could those kids do? Well, they can they can apprentice on our farm. Oh, you're looking for apprentices? No, not yet. Actually, um, I mean, we really can't pay anybody. But um, you know, we're always happy to have visitors. Of course. Are you um, allowed in your state to have um, volunteers on your farm? What's that? Are you, are you allowed to have volunteers on your farm? In your in California, you're not allowed to have. If you're a commercial operation, you're not allowed to have um, volunteers legally, technically. Oh. Maybe they're Boy, a little different in um, Montana. I have no idea. I don't see why not. Well, before you get any volunteers, you should look into it because my old boyfriend got busted by the law for having volunteers so. on his farm and had to pay all sorts of money to the labor labor department because he broke a law he didn't know about. Wow. Well, yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll look into that. Um, let's see. Is there anything you want to talk about? Um, well, if, if people out there want to see some pictures of the farm and what's happening, um, they can go to www.prairieheritagefarm.com, um, and you can see the latest big snow that we had the past three days, which has been a nice break. Wait, you, had, you just had rain for the past three days? Snow. We had about two feet of snow. Oh, my God. And you planted lentils in the snow? Well, I planted lentils last week when it was sunny and beautiful. And then it snowed for Uh-oh. three days, and now I can't plant anything until the snow melts and the ground dries. So everything's a little bit delayed now. Oh, bummer. But I'm yeah, we just had weather. Yes, or not yesterday. Wait, the day before yesterday, it was 91 degrees in upstate New York. And really, really windy, and I have a whole greenhouse full of babies that want to go out, 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 and I just couldn't do it. And today it's overcast, and I um, I put in, like, half an acre of beans, and I put in, um, like, half an acre of peas, and hopefully it's going to rain tonight. But it's a very weird spring. I mean, it went super hot, and then it's supposed to freeze again next week, apparently. I mean, that's what my friend said. I don't, I don't like global warming very much. No, it's, I mean, if weather was hard to predict before all this, it's now incredibly hard to predict. Yeah, my, um, my, when I talk about, to my mom, my mom has been calling me every night, which is kind of great, and giving me a little pep talk about, you know, whatever the heck I'm talking about. And I always talk about the weather, and she says, you know, farmers are always complaining about the weather. So I think that, you know, I don't really have a sense, like, I, I don't really, I don't really know if it is a lot worse. I mean, old, like, old timers definitely say that it's worse, but I think that there is also something that is inherent in starting that you just, like, all you want to talk about is the weather. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I, there's not maybe a couple hours that goes by where I'm not looking at the weather report. I mean, I've never studied the weather as much as I have this year. And tried to that look might be ahead, a good degree you know. for aspiring farmers or rural livers is meteorology. Yeah, exactly. If only I'd known that <laughs> when I was in school. Yeah, and another thing that I noticed um, this spring especially is how much the weather changes how the birds are, are behaving. 
And, like, right now it's really cloudy and it's, I think it's about to rain and the birds are just, like, totally shut up. But they were just so loud um, when it was this morning when it was clear. I almost want to learn, like, bird language for weather. When well, the birds I, are just what they're telling you. Well, if we stick at this long anyway, enough. This is not very, these are not very um, linear thoughts that you're getting right now. Um, let's give your website again because you have such a beautiful blog and so many beautiful photos. I want to make sure that people can write it down. It's www.prairieheritagefarm.com. Awesome. Um, I think this is good. I think we had a good interview. I feel like I might have forgotten to ask you something really important, though. Mm. Well, you think I did? You, you can add that. Um, I know that startup capital is a is a major obstacle for beginning farmers. And what we decided to do was to ask friends and family and not try not to go to a bank this first year. Um, and that's worked so far. How much did you manage to raise and, and what did you have to tell them? <laughs> and what is what? How much did you manage to raise and, and what, did you, what did you tell your friends and family about? You know, how did they? How did you gain their 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 financial trust? Well, actually, you know, I avoided family completely. I mean, my family has been. <laughs> you said family. My family has been incredibly supportive um, all my life, and so I felt like, okay, you know, they've supported me for so long. I'm going to hold off on them. And besides, you're talking about money, and um, money and family can be kind of tricky. Not that friends and money can't, but it's just a little bit different. So we just went with friends, and I asked five friends who I knew would be interested in at least what we were doing, and I put together a sort of a formal request letter that explained what we were doing, what we wanted to do, and how much we were hoping to raise, and, and how much we were asking them for. And so I, I gave them that letter, and and then they basically said yes or no, and and three three of the five said yes, and the other two were really supportive but just couldn't do it. You know, just financially themselves, they couldn't do it. And so um, it's actually worked out really well. We haven't raised all of the money that that I projected we need, but um, the final request is still pending, and, and he's, he's on board, so it's just a matter of following up. Um, have you learned, I mean, before this you were already farming, so you were already on the, like, the thrift train? But maybe you could share some of the techniques for um, for saving money that you may have learned, and like where to, where you can cut corners, and and where not to, because I think that these are the kinds of like things you don't learn on Sesame Street is right. how to um, like I find myself doing a lot of things that my grandmother taught me in terms of like the way that I roll up the bag and like, pinch it so nothing is wasted. And does it, do you have any? Um, is that triggering for you? Well, um, let's see. At least farming these last couple months, um, I've discovered that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the farm already. And so I had this idea that, you know what, I'm going to make do with what I have on the farm. And if I need a little piece or part or something like that, you need to just search the farm for a replacement or try to make it yourself to replace it. But I've learned that there's this balance between all that time spent trying to find 
find what you need to replace whatever it is that's broken or needs fixing, and just going out and buying it. Like, there's a point where you could spend your entire day searching for something or trying to fabricate it when that time could be spent, you know, planting in the greenhouse and, you know, just going to town, buying the part for $20 and then spending the rest of the day planting in the greenhouse. Like, there's, there is a fine balance between making do and, and just biting the bullet and, you know, getting what you need. And I don't, haven't actually found that balance yet because I find myself wasting a lot of time trying to make things do, but um, I know it's there. And, you know... I know. Well, I you know, like, the big expense... Like, for me, I just spend now, I don't know how many hours building from from junk lumber and from damaged construction wire, these 16 rabbit hutches for my, like, projected I want to kill five rabbits a week in order to generate $100 a week, you know, for my little plan. And... But, you know, on Craigslist, there was a rabbit hutch that was for sale that was, like, $200, but it was in some other county, and I didn't have a truck, and it was, like, a lot of complexity up front. But if I look at it in hindsight, you know, yes, I think that my hutches are really elegant, but I've scratched myself silly, and because I have this ethic of, um, you know, only using reclaimed and often rusty, (laughs) slightly rusty um, turkey wire, and it's definitely... It's, you know, you definitely put your ideas to the test. And I feel that my, you know, ethic and attitude and kind of strategic deployment of energy is changing. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm becoming a more pragmatic person as a result yeah. of having to bear the consequences of my decisions in real time. Right. Right. Well, it's I think just, there's two cool. things. I can't, and again, I wish that they taught this on Sesame Street where it's like how to be sensible, you know. Like, you just don't drop your screws where, you know, on the ground because then you have to search for them and everything like that. Right. But um, we'll have to make, we'll have to um, submit that idea to Sesame Street. It's from right. date. Mm. No. I feel like, I feel like we might be running out of time. I, I'm, 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 I'm slightly scatterbrained today because the weather is all strange and, um, and it's affecting my head. So I apologize if this is a little bit of a scattered interview, but I really thank you, Jacob, for coming on the air and sharing your experience. And if you have any um, follow-up ideas or thoughts about what you might like to talk about, you're certainly welcome to come back and we can have another discussion at some later time on Thursdays, 4 p.m. It's Greenhorns Radio. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Severin. I'm the director of the Greenhorns. Our blog is www.thegreenhorns.com. .wordpress.com, and on there are lots and lots of job opportunities, young farmer events in various corners of America, um, links to folks' other kinds of folks' blogs, like Jacob's, and um, some silliness. <laughs>